The audio you're about to hear was recorded in Anchor. Learn more at anchor.fm. Hello and welcome to the eighth episode of The Highlighter. This is Mark, your host. I'm very excited to be back after a break last weekend. Um, I'm here with Tim Reedy, and Tim is an educator in San Francisco, and he's a first-year principal, actually, at James Lick Middle School here in San Francisco. Welcome. How are you? I'm good. Hello, podcast world. Is this your first one ever? This is my first participation in the podcast, and when I listen to it, it'll be one of the first podcasts I listen to. Well, excellent. You know, you might go viral. You never know. It's going to be really great. Uh, it's really great to have you. Oh, the, this is the first time that we're actually doing it live. Right. You know, in person. You're not on the phone. You're here in my kitchen, which is very nice. We just had some food, and now we're going to chat. Um, first about you. I want to know a little bit about sure. you. So first, talk about how you, you've been a principal now for, what, a week or two? Um, officially seven days. Uh-huh. And how's it going? It was a good week. We had some rough spots to get through on the first day um, regarding some glitches to our master schedule, but it was a very rewarding week getting to meet all my new students. It's nice to be close to home because I'm only down the hill. Um, and it's a great little it's a great little school, a great, great faculty, and kids that you know just need some adult direction and support. So yeah, I'm enjoying it. And before this, you've been in San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco. This, I'm beginning my 16th year. I come to the work as a principal, as a grade level counselor, so um, an assistant principal five years before that. So it's a a different view. It's more of a thirty thousand foot view of what happens in a school versus the you know, and being on the ground at the same time, so I, I'm a little bit of a yo-yo up and down. Um, but it's exciting. Cool. Never thought I'd be here. Well, but why education, though, for you? Like, what's in your uh-huh. what's in your gut, at least this year? Like, what's what are you hoping to do, and then why have you been in education for this long? Um, I was a, my undergrad is in social work, so it was always going to be working with youth on some level, and I think through the course of my early part of my career, I decided that I wanted to be in the environment where you had the most direct impact on students. So that's when I became a school counselor. And then observations, desires of working with students at different levels, and I'm also kind of a systems person, and I really don't like redundancies and things that don't work. So when I, and so I propelled myself into administration just to be able to kind of like have that level of structure to be able to provide, you know, structure to school sites as, an admin, as a site administrator, as an AP, um, and to have the, to be able to give back more time to the two folks who are on the ground working with students by streamlining things and making things easier to get, whether it be central office within the school or whatnot. Um, but I've been in it for 16 years because of the kids. And, you know, I think we all say this, if we could go back to year one, um, we do our work very differently because... We don't know what we don't know in those first couple of years. And I think about some of those students, and I look for those students that I had the hardest time with in current students to be able to know how to better address their needs, um, support them, advocate for them, and ultimately um, intervene on behaviors and academics at a, on a different level that is going to have more of an impact because I know so much more. And then, of course, within our district and within the state of the, of the U.S. at this point in time, it's just the conversation around equity and getting our students access to the things that they need um, and being patient when they really don't know what it is that they need. 
because that's really what our kids are struggling with the most is what do I need to be able to do and how do you, I convince them that this is what you need to do and how do we work with them to, to sustain some of that? Because I got, I have middle school kids, so. Yeah, me. yeah, and why middle school? Um, they're my people. They get my jokes. Um, they are moldable. They, they, they struggle between wanting to listen and not listen. <clears throat> Ultimately, they listen. Um, and I just think that they're the most interesting beings that are really stuck in between being children and being young adults. And they're the ones that need the most care and understanding. And nothing is, nothing makes me happier than to be able to communicate something to a student on a level that they can understand it. And then they go, oh, you understand what I'm trying to say. Even though you're an old guy, you still kind of get what, I, what it is that I'm trying to do. And I just, they are the neediest. And I, they're, and then they're goofy, you know. They're just, their bodies are abandoning them. And, you know, they're trying to figure out how to sit, from, go from sitting. Well, I was thinking about which article you were going to choose, and it did make sense that you were going to choose the one that you did, but it's also 55 minutes, so you got through it and everything, you're all excited about that? You know, it, it, I, I have to admit that I haven't kept up with the highlighter, um, and I appreciated the end of the opening email that you gave times to it, and that was a new thing that you were doing, and then I looked at the articles, and I was like, well, that seems like the most interesting one, but it's 55 minutes long. So I did choose When Should a Child Be Taken from His Parents um, by Larissa McForker. I think I said that right. I'm not sure. I'm sorry, Larissa. Um, but it was the minutes, the 55 minutes was a little bit of a roadblock. But of all the articles, it was the one that I think impacts the work that I do, um, being a, a mandated reporter and, and how our our kids go through the system, our students go through the system. So I was like, I'm going to sit down. I did it in 45. So I did pretty good. That's great. Yeah. Well, congratulations. You know, the whole point about the highlighter is that, you know, you really commit to at least a couple articles. So thank you for that. Yeah. Um, but you've also been in this work. For me, as a person who just was as a teacher and, you, and I knew that I needed to go call CPS sometimes or I had students in the foster care system who were in my classes. But for me as an educator, it was always like not normal, meaning, oh, you have the students with, you know, one uh, family, like one parent, or you have, you know, the, the students who, who live with um, grandma or something. But then it was always not part of my normal day to really know what I needed to do right. um, as a teacher. But for you as a counselor and then now as a principal, it's a little bit, a little bit different. Um, I mean, this article got me thinking just because it it, it was just so intense, um, you know, especially like the mom and what she's going through. What did you think about it? Well, foster youth in San Francisco are special populations within the district. So we have three or four people within the district that work very closely with CPS and foster youth and getting them through the school system if there's changes that need to be made processing them through that, tutoring and other things. So they are, um, at least within SWSD, a group of students that are well taken care of or at least advocated for. But um, And so as a counselor, we always know who our foster youth are because that's the front lines. And if nobody knows who they are in the school, usually it's us that uncover it um, and then get them the right services. But it was interesting because, you know, 
as a mandated reporter, there's often those hesitations to report because what you really want to report about, it, nine times out of ten, it's not physical abuse. It's emotional neglect, in all honesty. When kids aren't attending school, that's a form of neglect. CPS doesn't do anything about that because it's not, the kid is still fed, the kid is still fine, they're just not coming to school. So we always struggle with when to make those phone calls. And then a kid is wearing clothes, the same clothes every day. You know, but what is that? That's poverty. Is that neglect? It's always hard for us to kind of discern between that. And the article really does, you know, and with the lens of equity, you know, that I've developed over the last, you know, decade in this work, it really is a, a race issue. Because how many kids, you know, white families leave their kids at home for the night? And nobody bothers to check in on them because there isn't somebody, you know, in the building or checking up on them or, you know, in the article talking about, you know, she has to go to rehab because she's smoking pot. Well, how many parents smoke pot in front of their kids or are high in front of their kids or drunk in front of their kids um, at a different socioeconomic level and there's no issues about those kids being removed from the house nobody's calling CPS on them. So it was very interesting to kind of like spend 45 minutes just kind of reading through, I think there were diff about five different perspectives um, presented in the article and advocacy and, and lenses that I was like, how really are we serving our students in foster youth? And by putting them there, are we actually doing anything better for them? Like a foster parent can get $1,200 a kid, $4,000 for three kids, but why aren't we giving that to the parent to be able to lift themselves on a poverty and be able to handle their, their children's needs better? That was the one striking thing for me. I was just like, yeah, this is kind of, she's struggling to get her kids, but what happens? Yeah, the five perspectives that you talk about, do you think that, like, did they ring true to you? Well, it's like, you have the parent, you have the CPS worker, you have kind of the judge and the two people in the article, folks who were working in the system and trying to work around the system and they kind of parted company and one became a judge and was really, I liked her perspective because she's like, you know, get, get these kids into a summer program if they're not in a summer program, get them into a tutoring program and she was mandating that through the courts, which is great because she had a lens of what do kids actually need and her whole point was if somebody in a higher socioeconomic environment was providing these for their student, for their child, then we should be providing these for our our other student, for students within the foster care system. Um, but then there was this, like, if a parent can't meet those high, high demands because of who they are, that it becomes a struggle for them to be able to meet those things. And so do they get removed from the home because they can't meet some of those higher expectations? So I thought, you know, and I didn't clearly get, like, the missing gap between the responsibility of getting those students in places where they need to be to be able to have the access. And the article went on to talk about that it was the parent, the parent who was doing it, or at least indicated that. But I was like, as a school personnel, it's like, there's kind of like several hands in the pot to try to get those kids to the places they need to go. Ultimately, it falls on a parent. And even if you are a parent that doesn't have a kid that's in the foster care system, you're trying to get access to those resources. So... For me, it's all—it's always been about how do you get kids to where they need to be in an after-school program, in an academic setting, 
um, because there's a lot of hand-holding that you need to do. And if you don't hold the hands to get them there, they're not going to automatically go there because there's no muscle memory, there's no learned um, learned control of doing that because everybody's parenting in different ways based on how they used to be, or how they were parented by their own families. So it's like, when I want to get a kid to an after-school program, to a park and rec, I sometimes have to physically walk them, make those phone calls, make those connections, and then get them there three or four times in order for them to like, oh, I like this place, these people like me. And that takes, that's one adult, one child. And in the foster care system, you're talking, you know, 9,000 students that you're trying to get court order or recognize what the court orders are mandating and then finding the adults to get them there. And I don't, there's not enough adults. Yeah. Well, that's what I felt is like the system actually in this article, there weren't really any villains. No. But once like this happened, it, it seemed like there was a stuckness, you know, especially for the mom Mercedes who, that's what I wanted you to talk more about. Like the article talks about poverty neglect and abuse and the continuum how and they all go back to poverty but it's not like that you can't do anything about it but as you say if there are more resources actually for the kids to stay in their homes then maybe something would change um how does the system figure that out between you know between neglect and then also poverty how does that work? i i don't i think the you you man it's hard you there's there's too many nuances i think the rhetoric today is a simple solution to a difficult problem so we define the problem and then we create solutions to that problem but that problem exists in 15 different ways with 30 different nuances that you have to understand in order to intervene and change what that circumstance is there is no simple solution to any of that. Um, if it is indeed poverty, it's a relationship with her mom. And that's why she was getting kicked out of the house and couldn't stay there because they didn't have a good relationship. So then she's in shelters where she doesn't want to be. And then trying to care for the kids in a shelter. But she's, you know, I think based on math, she was probably 19 or 20 years old with two kids. So she didn't have any necessarily any structure or knowledge about what to do because she was a teenage girl. And what does a teenage girl know about raising kids? Yeah, it sounds really, really complicated and really, really hard to meet the needs of young people. And you did it full time when you were a counselor. Mm -hmm. And this year, you're going to be a first year principal running a school. You're going to be the head of all these things, a lot of teachers, a lot of parents. If you dig into education for the kids, for their goofiness and also their needs, how... What do you hope for for this year for you to keep in mind the students that you went into education for? Well, I got to keep my head afloat. I got to keep it above the water so I'm not drowning. Um, but it is, it's, I'm a, since I'm a counselor by training, there's a lot of things that I want to get my hands in. And I realize that I have to rely on my counselors, my assistant principals, my teachers to do that ground level of work and to be able to free their time opportunities to be with students to be able to do that individual work with students and find where my where my where my work can be I think for me you know special populations is very dear to my heart because there's kids out there that can function beautifully you know they've got a two-parent household or a functioning one-parent household they can access the things that they need to access 
and they need love and support, but they don't need individualized attention with regularity. So then finding those students, and I've got a student population that's 72% Latino and 10% African American, and um, I would say that it's our African American students that are feeling a little disenfranchised, and for me, to really get in with them and, and try to have some conversations and some dialogues about what works for you in school, what doesn't work for you in school, if you could change a few things, what would that look like? What, what do you need from a school environment? And just to listen and to hear, because everything, anybody in education knows that it's about the relationship between the adult and the, and the child. And so I need to seek out some of those students who feel like they don't have those relationships with an adult and start to try to create them for myself and to find organizations to come in and ground them in our school setting because they don't live in the neighborhood. They come from a distance. So I have some ideas about community-based organizations that can come in and work with African-American students specifically. But I think ultimately um, it's working with my staff to really understand the inequities that exist in education as a whole, that exist in SFUSD and exist at James Lake, and begin to kind of turn their perspective around on what it is that they may be doing to perpetuate those inequities or that their good intentions are just that without any skills around how do I make those good intentions actually deliverable to students to see the school environment in a different way. And those are challenges I've not had to face directly because as an assistant principal at another, at a, another school in the city, um, some of those inequities weren't necessarily as obvious. And so trying to get staff into that frame of mind, we, I left when we started to do that work. But now here in leading that, and my assistant principals are very much in line with that, is to begin to start to have those conversations. Because I can only lead, I mean, I can do so much, but I also have to figure out how I can get people to change and lead them to understand that, you know, working with students has you what you say to them even microaggressions and all those other things that we think we're being funny it's a joke they're like they don't get it because they haven't come up in your household and in some cases those are white households um so they don't understand it that you it's like i'm a nice person i'm a great person how could you not like me it's because what you represent to them is not their culture and when you when you think that you're doing something that's beneficial you might actually not realize how unbeneficial it is because you don't have that lens of like, but it's coming from this white man or this white woman, um, and I don't respect you because of that. It's like, so then teaching them to come down and have, and have that conversation of respect of who you are and then, and then beginning to build that relationship that then you can, and you gotta take time out. You have to figure out how to take time outside the classroom. I have to figure out how to take time out of the school day and beyond the school day to be present at things that my kids are involved in across the city. And that's, I think, ultimately my challenge is taking a 10-hour workday and making it into weekends and evenings to be able to be present for them so that when they're at school, they're going to listen a little bit more, they're going to feel needed, they're going to feel wanted, and then they're going to begin to want to be in the classroom to, to do that learning process. So it's going to be a challenging year, but it's going to be a great year at the same time. Well, Tim, it's totally clear it's going to be a great year, even though I'm sure that you're not going to be getting too much sleep. Um, so therefore, it's Sunday night. I want to thank you so much for coming to my kitchen to do this podcast. But uh, you need to go rest, don't you think? Yes. Great. And thank you so much. And 
I just hope that you have a really great week next week, and I hope that you have a great year. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm excited to see how many hits we get. It's going to be thousands. <laughs> um, Tim is a loyal subscriber to the newsletter. Um, if you sort of like the podcast, you should consider subscribing to where this podcast comes from, and that's on Thursday at what time? Is it 9.19? Oh, that's close. It's 9.10. 9.10. Okay. And uh, 9.10 a.m., you can subscribe. And the way that you do it is you go to j.mp slash the highlighter, all one word. That's j.mp slash the highlighter. I'm your host, Mark Isera. I'll see you here next week for another podcast episode. Have a great week. The audio you just heard was recorded in Anchor. Learn more at anchor.fm.